Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. It's good to be back. It is good to be back. We're here with another riveting episode of Historically Badass Broads. Today's lovely lady is slightly politically leaned, and I was inspired to learn more about her and other women like her due to the upcoming election. I think it's oh, we we are recording this before November third. Currently, a big mystery for us. It's killing us to not know. You know, this is kind of like when in whatever year of education they make you write a letter to yourself. I feel like this is like a little time capsule of us worrying about the future. And then when mm. we listen to it, it'll, it'll, whatever will be, will have been, you know? That's beautiful. I didn't write a letter to myself in school, but if I did, I imagine I'd be feeling the same thing. Absolutely nothing would have changed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So yes, we're just little balls of anxiety and worry. But one of um, my ways of coping is shutting myself off from the world and reading. And so that's what I chose to do. And thank you. And so Mm -hmm. today we're going to learn more about Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. She is someone I had never heard of before. And I had heard of various compatriots, but I had not heard of her. And once I started reading about her, I got really excited. I I have also not heard of her, just to put that out there. I will once again be asking fresh questions for everyone. I'm here for this. I think it might be really important to see the imperative right for us to vote. I think it's important Mm -hmm. to understand what that struggle looked like and more specifically what that struggle looked like for women of color. Absolutely. Um, Because the suffragettes movement has been very whitewashed. And although we cannot discount, you know, the contributions of of white women to that movement, we also cannot just simply erase the fact that it, it was also very much supported by, and in fact, often it galvanized by women of color. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I was coming from with this was I, I read a wonderful article few years ago about that. And, you know, I never really cared to study modern or more modern history. Not that I wasn't interested about in reading about it, but that I never really cared to delve that far into it just because it just happened. Mm -hmm. But it seemed, you know, it seemed like a good time to do so. And so today we delve deeper. So Frances was born on September 24th in 1825. She was born in Baltimore. Wait, that's your modern history? Yep. 1825? Correct. <laughs> just wanted to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> Great, continue. Uh, just happened. 
Um, (laughs) In all articles about her, it says just both parents were free. And there is no recording of their names, anything like that. But unfortunately, they both died three years later in 1828. And she ended up being raised by her maternal aunt and uncle, Henrietta and the Reverend William James Watkins. Is their cause of death known? No, there is unfortunate. I couldn't find really any information. I couldn't even find their names. I think it literally said at one point their names were unknown. Um, I was just curious if they died at the same time. I, I wonder what that was. But I, I agree. I agree. I think that would be... That's so sad. Yes, for a three-year-old. And... But she actually couldn't have landed with a better set of foster relatives. Um, And she was educated at the Watkins Academy for Negro Youth, which her uncle had actually founded in 1820. Mm -hmm. That was the actual name of the academy. Um, And he was a fascinating figure. He was an abolitionist, of course. You know, he, he was this just phenomenal social worker in the community. And that was one of the schools he founded. And of course she was allowed to go, which even in, you know, around when she would have been there, like 1830 something was pretty revolutionary for a girl. What I have to say about her life is not nearly important, as important as what she's had to say about her own, because she's a writer. And so we're so lucky to have a lot of her work still with us. And so I, I plan to mostly highlight that because I think that says more and will hopefully give people a better understanding of her experience than I ever could. That's our favorite. Yeah. I'm so excited. It's so exciting to have writings. It's the best. And in fact, fun fact, she was the first black woman to publish a short story ever. Ah, incredible. Yes. So I want to read it. It's, it's really cool. And she she was very prolific. Around 13, when she was 13 years old, she started work as a seamstress, which was very common at the time. Around 13, kids were expected to go find work. Mm-hmm. But she used all of her time for reading and writing. And by the age of 21, she published her first collection of poems called Forest Leaves. And it, the timeline gets a little interesting here. Um, just because I'm trying, to, I, I tried to really map out what, <laughs> you know, where she was at times. But she moved around a little bit. She moved... To Columbus, Ohio, when she was 26, she taught domestic science um, at the Union Seminary, which was a really incredible school. It was actually, excuse me, a school for Black students. Then around two years, a year or two later, she moved to York, Pennsylvania and um, taught there. Around 1839, she started to publish pieces in anti-slavery journals. And in around 1853, Three, she joined the American Anti-Slavery Society and she became a traveling lecturer. And in 1854, she delivered her first anti-slavery speech, which is called Education and the Elevation of Colored Race. And it was so popular, she ended up going on a two-year lecture tour in Maine. Ooh, celebrity status. I know, which is really cool. I tried to find that speech and I was I was having a really difficult time finding any transcript of it. But, you know, if and if someone can, please share it with me because I'd love to read it. But, yeah, so she – and then in the same year, she published um, – it's called Poems on Miscellaneous Subjects, which ended up being immensely popular, and it was reprinted a lot of times. And then 
This is in 1859. She was the first black woman to publish a short story and it was called The Two Offers. And they, the, the Anglo-American, excuse me, the Anglo-African magazine then published her essay, Our Greatest Want. And it was a really, it's an interesting essay. She talks about, she kind of compares and links um, a religious idea of the oppression of African-Americans to the oppression of the Hebrew people, meaning Jews, in Egypt. And it's it's an interesting, it's a really interesting one. Um, and she continued to publish with these magazines. There were a few um, kind of weekly newspapers that were Civil War era periodicals, and they were hugely popular because they, they were a forum for people to discuss and debate um, you know, abolition and, and, and various other subjects. And, and, you know, in her lifetime, she ended up publishing around 80 poems, which is pretty Ooh. incredible. And one of them is, is called the slave mother. Um, she also named one to, to the Cleveland union savers. Um, and it, what's interesting is that her poems kind of take other forms. So some of them are, you know, from an outside perspective. Some of them are from the perspective of various people. Um, sometimes they're from the perspective of slaves and sometimes they're from the perspective of various um, freed individuals. And it, it's just really interesting how she plays with her subject matter. And I, I love that. Um, mm -hmm. In 1872, she published Sketches of Southern Life. She talked about touring the South and meeting newly freed people. Uh, the Civil War had ended in 1865, and she had moved to the South to teach newly freed Black people, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So when she published Sketches of Southern Life, she talked about their experiences and the fact that the Reconstruction era was actually just horrible for black women. It wasn't that, you know, slave, ending slavery necessarily made their lives perfect immediately. It was, you know, they lived very in very, very harsh conditions and continued to do so during the reconstruction era. And so after the civil war, you know, which is as, you know, has continued to be very important for people to fight for their rights. Unfortunately, she has continued, mm -hmm. she continued to do that. She continued to fight for the rights of women and African-Americans and other social causes in general. And in the sketches, she actually uses the figure of an ex-slave to narrate them. And she calls her Aunt Chloe. What? Yeah. Plot twist. It was me. <laughs> All along. I'm actually a vampire, a shape-shifting vampire. That's exciting. Well, you knew that. You I... knew that. That's not new information. Mm -hmm. I'm happy for you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I do want to just go back. I think there's a really interesting moment in 1858, a hundred years before Rosa Parks, she refused to give up her seat on a ride in the colored section of a segregated trolley car in Philadelphia. Wow. Why, why do we not know her name? What a question. I think what's interesting is when you end up studying the civil rights movement of the 1960s, mm -hmm. you do understand how, deeply intelligent the people who ran it were. And not that I ever doubted that, but when you understand the strategy of what they did and not that it all was strategy, but for example, there were other people who acted similar to Rosa Parks, but Rosa Parks, they literally deemed was a better, better face for the campaign. Exactly. Thank you. And, mm -hmm. 
And so she, she became, you know, the face of, of that particular struggle, which of course she deserved. Um, but there were others. She wasn't the only one. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's also another example of a woman in the 19th century refusing to give up her seat. And and I think it's, it's a shame that we don't have their names listed, that we don't understand them the way we hear about Susan B. Anthony and, you know, Ida B. Wells, who is understandably still underrated and incredible and someone, you know, who's worth discussion, of course, but, you know, where's Frances Harper? Also the fact of history literally repeating itself. I mean, centuries of the same issues. And exactly. And the same issues and unfortunately the same tactics to fight because what were they left with? Right. And, and I think what's interesting and what I love is that Frances Harper, yes, was very progressive and was a, an activist and did all of these things, but she was also a teacher and she was also a writer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really, really interesting when you read some of her work to understand the depth of her need for activism. And not that, of course, they needed the activism, but her need for it in emotionally. And I think, you know, any great activist has that in common with her. And I, I love reading about that. You you can see the fervor of it with them. And it, it's only inspiring and it's so exciting. And I, I think what's really interesting too is at the time, Black people in America weren't just fighting for their own rights. Generally speaking, they were part of the suffragette movement, of the suffrage movement. They were part of, of you know, prohibition and, and various other discussions at the time. I mean, the 15th Amendment is under huge debate in like the 1860s, I think. And, and it's, it's the 15th amendment is, is the extension of, um, it enfranchises men of all races and creeds. Mm -hmm. And it's a deeply important one, but it actually led to a fracturing of the women's suffrage movement because Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who were two white suffragettes, hugely popular and women, I'm sure we've, whether or not you remember their names, you may, they sound familiar. Susan B. Anthony, of course, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, she's a little more peripheral, Mm -hmm. Um, but they were deeply racist and they had no interest in supporting the 15th amendment because it didn't extend the right of suffrage to women. And they could care less about extending the right of voting to men of color. And that's where we have to see, you know, there's such a fracturing in the movement then. So Black suffragettes are also being cut out of the suffrage movement in general because of the color of their skin, because of course they support the 15th Amendment. And yes, it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't go far enough. But why wouldn't you support progress? Yeah, I guess the thought of fighting for equality, but not actually fighting for equality continues to be frustrating. Yes, that's a wonderful way to put it. Your entire movement is about equality for men and women but you don't understand equality for people of all races. I mean, that mm-hmm. just doesn't really compute for me, but obviously I'm not in 1800. So no, but I can't really say anything, but you can, because the same thing's happening now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that just gave me chills. That's yeah. truly horrific. It is, but that's why it's so yeah. important for us to understand the struggles and, and what people have gone through, what they have sacrificed. Absolutely. So that we can fight today. And I think with, 
with Francis, she gave an incredible speech before the National Women's Rights Convention, which was an annual convention that was held. And she gave a speech in 1866. And I'm, I'm just going to read a portion of it, but it's, 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 it is known as the We Are All Bound Up Together. And it's deeply moving. And I, I'm, I love the speech. She says, We are all bound up together in one great bundle of humanity, and society cannot trample on the weakest and feeblest of its members without receiving the curse in its own soul. You tried that in the case of the Negro. You white women speak here of rights. I speak of wrongs. I, as a colored woman, have had in this country an education which has made me feel as if I were in the situation of Ishmael, my hand against every man and every man's hand against me. While there exists this brutal element in society which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white woman of America. Mm. The continuation of the same exact sentiment. I feel like that could have been written yesterday. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rachel Cargill has this whole series in which she shares resources and modes of education about the racial injustice, you know, in America and across the world. But there's a specific module on the danger of white women and the power that they have and, mm. you know, how when they don't use their power properly, it can be so deeply damaging for so many others. And that genuinely could have been a part of that article. Wow. Yeah. What a Horrendous. shame. <laughs> Horrendous. <laughs> Beautifully written, though. Incredibly written. Um, and that speech actually had a huge, was a huge, gave a huge you know, effect in the women's suffrage movement. And it, it allowed for Black women to take a stand and say, you know, we no longer desire just equality for white men, but also with white women. It's not just about equality with the men. It's about equality with people of our own gender with whom we're fighting for a similar cause. She helped to found the American Women's Suffrage Association and in doing so rejected the racism of people like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. She worked really hard with the Freedmen's Bureau and encouraged many men to get land so that they could vote and act, you know, independently once the 15th Amendment was passed because it was still landholding based. And she became deeply active in a bunch. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
of various organizations like the National Women's Christian Temperance Union. And she ended up being the superintendent of the colored section of the Philadelphia and Philadelphia um, Women's Christian Temperance Union. She helped to form kind of a group of just not even a group, just to help to form a place where women of color could go to seek justice and understand and discuss all things moral. And, you know, she also was deeply impassioned, you know, and, and part of her fight was for the federal government to understand its responsibility to protect the rights and regulate morality and promote social welfare. And of course the regulating morality is, is very you know, it is very Christian leaning and and prohibition based, I believe, but Mm. it's nonetheless important. She understood that the government, you know, this is a debate I've been having with my, my beloved father is, you know, what's the purpose of government? And if it's not to protect rights, regulate morality and promote social welfare, as is mentioned in this article, you know, I have with her and it's not different. The regulate morality thing, I think is very debatable in this day and age, but, you know, at the time I can understand that part, but I, I, you know, I think it's just so interesting to read about. Um, She helped to organize the National Association of Colored Women in 1894. She was elected the VP in 1897. And so the, the, you know, those are the, I'm reading to you, highlights of her political life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think, you know, interestingly, what I love is her personal life is basically a footnote in every article, but I think it's important that we understand what she went through. She, in 1860, ended up marrying a widower named Fenton Harper, hence the Harper being her public, a lot of her last name, not Watkins. Although of course she published quite a few things before she was married and they are still published under her maiden name. Mm -hmm. They had one daughter, Mary Frances Harper, um, and he had three kids from his dead wife. And unfortunately, he died four years later, and she had to support all four kids. So all the while she is doing this, she's single-handedly supporting four kids. What? I know. So that's why every time they're like, oh, yeah, she was also married. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's think about the ramifications of her marriage. (gasps) No. Yeah. So she's also a single mom to four. That's two full-time jobs. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Jeez, women. I know. <laughs> Truly unbelievable. And yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just so exciting to see, you know, where she's coming from and understanding that she, and not that you couldn't just fight for yourself. Not that you, of course you can, but that maybe she just wasn't, you know? She had other women to fight for in her life. And I think you can see there the importance of her legacy. Um, Mm -hmm. She published a short novel in um, 1892 called Eola. I'm not saying that right. And I apologize. Leroy or Shadows Uplifted. And it's a really interesting novel. I, I actually really recommend it. It's basically what happens in the story. Eola's father was a slaveholder and a young slave, Marie, was taking care of him when he survived and he set Marie free, married her. They had three kids, but they all could pass for white. And so the the children were educated in the North and you couldn't tell that they were black. And so they, they this is actually a really interesting 
discussion. And there were a lot of um, debates at the time about Black people who could pass as white and understanding their struggles as well. Because I think a lot of, from what I was reading um, at the time, of course, there would be a lot of issues or, you know, resentment with Black people who couldn't seek the same opportunities because they weren't able to pass. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... Eugene, her father, dies, and his cousin declares that Marie, her mother's manumission was entirely illegal. And so Marie and her kids are completely, are legally considered slaves. The the horrid cousin um, basically goes to the seminary where Yola was preparing for her graduation. And in it, she's defending slavery in discussions with students because she doesn't know that she's Black. And Oh, she doesn't even know? mm Mm-mm. Goodness. Okay. And then the agent tells her, because the agent can do anything they want to drag them back south. So he tells her that her father was dying, even though he had already died. And then when she got back home, she learned she was a slave and was sold from her mother. So basically, they she becomes a nurse in a military hospital, and she ends up meeting a cousin, and they end up to search for his mother, who recognizes her story, and then the family's reunited um, and they locate her brother, Harry, who had been fighting in the Union Army. And then, so it's an interesting story and it talks about temperance and religion, prayer is hugely important, women in society. And there's a really interesting moment. In chapter 17, she's teaching Black children and a gentleman asks to address the class. And he asks about the, quote, achievements of the white race and then asks, quote, how they did it. They've got the money, chorused the children, but how did they get it? They took it from us, chimed the youngsters. Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. And Yola's somewhat outspoken and, you know, very feminist, uh, proto-feminist for her time. And and what's interesting is that the men don't necessarily disagree with it, which I love. So the women in this, the story have a lot of influence on the men and morally but it's not like the white woman who's like behind the you know every behind the head of the man is the woman who's the neck or whatever it's not that it's very different they're not silent they're not submissive they don't hide um and sometimes you know some of the very outspoken and feminist things that they say are actually deeply and readily accepted by the men i wonder if that's based on households that she's seen or how she wishes it would be. Do you know what? That's a great question. And I don't know the answer. I don't know. Oh, we'll never know. No, we'll never know. But I imagine it's a bit of both. Right. I mean, I, I you probably can't come up with something like that out of nowhere, but you never know. Exactly. But Maybe also- she had a crazy dream in which there was a qualm. <laughs> yeah. Woke up and she goes, I must write this. It must, it's happened before. Um, her uncle, Robert, who's one of the ones who finds them in the end and helps to reunite the family. She wants to apply for a job and he earns enough money and she, so that she doesn't have to go out and work. And she says, and I quote, I have a theory that every woman ought to know how to earn her own living. I believe that a great amount of sin and misery springs from the weakness and inefficiency of women, which is an interesting statement. And I think it's not saying that women are inherently weak. I don't think that's what she's saying. I think it's that women are made to be weak. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, become inefficient and more weak, right? And can cause a lot of sin. And you know whether or not you agree with that particular statement, I think it's it's an interesting one because she basically says, "I 
every woman should absolutely have the right to know what it is to earn her own living. I'm sure she also found purpose in her work. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, we see, you could transport the 1850s and 60s into the 1950s and 60s and you wouldn't see much difference in familial dynamics. Because we always see this in history. It's, you know, there's a positivist, we used to talk about this in school, there's a positivist view of history, meaning history is always on an upward trajectory. It's always getting better, but that's absolutely false. There's no, there's never been a record of that. History is a wave, you know, history goes up and down and there's no getting better. There's only getting. And I think, you know, when we think about the struggle for civil rights and human rights, that's never been more apparent, that wave life like feature. And we see in times where there have been great conservatism, they're followed often sometimes by periods of, you know, swings completely left and go to almost too liberal to the point where it shocks society and they swing further back. So we see, you know, exactly. And we see right after, you know, in, in the late 19th, early 20th into the 1920s, of course, we're seeing huge liberal strives for women. Skirts are Mm -hmm. shortening, which doesn't seem like much, but literally allow women to do more. Um, Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember the days when ankles and ears were the, the, the sluttish issues. I'm telling you. But then, of course, what happens again? You see the 1930s, you see prohibition, and you see the Great Depression, in America at least, and, but throughout the world pretty much. But, mm-hmm. you know, and so it swings com- back so far right. And that doesn't really change because then we're hit with a war. And then what happens during war? Oh, you're supposed to be patriotic. And somehow patriotism is equated with white supremacy, which I'll never understand. And it's, you know, why does patriotism mean I have to be proud of every aspect of my country when I'm not? And I think it's, it's, we see that happen again and again. And so, you know, going back to Frances, I think her struggle is, is all the more indicative of that. You know, here's a woman who was born and the only thing they could say about her was that she was free, which at the time was remarkable and could not have been more important, but that's all I have about her life. I don't have a lot about her and her temperament. I don't have a lot about her life. I don't know enough about her, but what I have, you know, I, I have you, her, her writings, I have her, her feelings. I have her activism, which says more than anything, you know, any conversation I could have with her would ever teach me. Um, mm-hmm. and And I think it's so deeply important that we think about women who have given so much for us to have the right to vote and who have given so much for us to have the right to be in public spaces. You know, that wasn't, that's something we take for granted now, but we shouldn't for us to have our own credit cards, for us to have our own bank accounts without Mm -hmm. a man's approval. That's recent, you know, that's, that's RBG who did that for us. And it's Mm -hmm. too easy to forget and to think, oh, that happened in history. It's not that long ago. But I call this modern history for a reason. You know, this just happened. (laughs) Yeah. And what I think is horrible is that for most of history, when we discuss causes like this, it's the Black women who carry the burden of everyone's freedom. Mm. Because they're not only having to, you know, they're, they're, 
joining movements that already exist, meaning the suffrage movement, but they're also being excluded from it. And so they have to fight other movements, meaning they have to also join, of course they would, you know, join the abolitionist movements, but they're also joining the fifth, you know, the, the men's voting rights movements right. at the time, which, which needed to be a thing. And of course the night when the 19th amendment ended up being passed, it wasn't universal suffrage for all women at the age of 18. It was landowning, I, I believe. And I, if I'm not mistaken, it was also, you had to be married. Of course. Naturally. But, you know, so, so yeah, so these women have to fight for everyone's freedom just in order to fight for their own. And I could talk about her forever. I think she's incredible. Um, I want to read a poem that she wrote that's perhaps one of her most famous poems. It was written for the Anti-Slavery Bugle in 1858, and it's called Bury Me in a Free Land. Mm. Make me a grave where you will, in a lowly plain or a lofty hill. Make it among earth's humblest graves, but not in a land where men are slaves. I could not rest if around my grave I heard the steps of a trembling slave. His shadow above my silent tomb would make it a place of fearful gloom. I could not rest if I heard the tread of a coffle gang to the shambles led, and the mother's shriek of wild despair rise like a curse on the trembling air. I could not sleep if I saw the lash drinking her blood at each fearful gash, and I saw her babes torn from her breast like trembling doves from their parent nest. I'd shudder and start if I heard the bay of bloodhounds seizing their human prey, and I heard the captive plead in vain as they bound afresh his galling chain. If I saw young girls from their mother's arms bartered and sold for their youthful charms, my eye would flash with a mournful flame, my death-pale cheek grow red with shame. I would sleep, dear friends, where bloated might can rob no man of his dearest right. My rest shall be calm in any grave where none can call his brother a slave. I ask no monument, proud and high, to arrest the gaze of the passers-by. All that my yearning spirit craves is bury me not in a land of slaves. Oh, I have chills everywhere. Such a beautiful writer. I know. I I just couldn't recommend everyone to read more about her. Um, the poems on miscellaneous subjects, you know, Flora's Leaves. She had three novels that were published in a serial form. One's called Mini Sacrifice. The other one's called Trial and Triumph. And then the other one's called Sowing and Reaping. They are wonderful. Um, we have a choice, you know, we can choose as people to be willfully ignorant, which unfortunately I've seen too many people in our country and personal lives do, but we have a choice to educate ourselves. And when you can do so with such a beautiful piece of writing where you can truly understand or try to understand the struggle, um, I think it's, it's all the more important because it's been published. It's not very hard to find. And... <laughs> You know, it's not. And and so Frances, unfortunately, she passed away on February 22nd, 1911, at the age of 86. She did get to see, of course, you know, um, the emancipation, but she didn't get to see the 19th Amendment passed. Unfortunately, her daughter Mary had died two years before her, mm. um, and they were buried next to each other. And that is the unbelievable life of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Oh, 
I love her. Mm -hmm. She reminds me of that, um, that part of the song in Hamilton. That's like, why do you write like you're running out of time? Yeah. Yes. She seems to be one of those people that feels a constant drive to change the world and write and go out and just get it done, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, because who's going to do it for you? Just the sheer amount of things. I mean, you say that you don't know a lot about her temperament and her personal life. But and, you get it you from know, the writing. Mm-hmm. You there, there's so much. <laughs> you you listed so many different things that she did, and <laughs> was a part of, and started, and fought for. It's incredible. I know, I know, and it's it's, it's good. Find love. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it's interesting. Is I could have chosen actually a few a number of women who had similar titles under their belt, meaning they were abolitionists, mm-hmm. they were suffragettes, they were, um, you know, prohibitionists, they were very, you know, they were fighting mm-hmm. for all of the cause causes. And I think it's just so, it's so wonderful to hear her words. I think that's, that's something I, I love that made her to me very special. Well, thank you for sharing her today. Of course. Somewhat apropos. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, when we listen back, <laughs> we will know. Hey, hey, future listeners, hope hope it's good there. Hope it's good. Hope hope you're all good. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Don't think about it. <laughs> We're not going to think about it. Nope. I guess we'll weigh in next time then. Yes, we will. We will do that. Or maybe we won't. Maybe free speech will have been abolished by then. We don't know. Oh, jokes that hurt. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Too soon? Too raw. I don't know. Uh, Clearly not too soon since this repeats throughout the the entirety of time. It's constant. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll see you in another part of the entirety of time. We shall. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Yes. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.